Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? Today, we are going back to D-Day because it's my favorite. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, I mean, it's very bloody, but you're, we... You're, you're like, that's my favorite that day That was my history. favorite day. Okay. <laughs> um, but I got a chance to sit down with Erica Roebuck, and I'm so excited to tell right. you about it. I'm in. Let's see it. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. The podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Episode 28, clandestine, no, clandestine Work and Virginia Hall. I know nothing. Okay. <laughs> I'm what, so are we, what are we doing? So, I am so excited because, as you know, I'm a D-Day buff. Huge. Huge D-Day buff. And yep, muscles swell over D-Day. woo <laughs> um, And I got a chance to read a historical fiction novel written by Erica Roebuck, who okay. is a historical fiction author. Oh. And um, about the Virginia Hall. And if you've never heard of her, which I had never heard of her. No, not even ringing one bell. The Amazon slash bookstore world is blowing up with books on this woman right now. And it just Why? seems like something happened where people were like, epiphany, let's write about her. She's a badass. And oh, so like everyone's everybody kind of going for... is all about her. And so whether it's historical fiction or straight history, there are books out on this woman. And just this year, uh, a film came out called A Call to Spy, which is on Amazon Prime. <gasps> oh, yeah. Yeah, I've seen the um, commercials for this. Yeah. Or a trailer. The trailer. And it's all about Virginia Hall. And I am so excited. So if you have seen the movie, okay. what um, – Have don't know, you seen the movie? I've seen the movie. And what's very interesting about the movie and the book that Erica Roebuck wrote is that her book picks up where the movie ends. <gasps> okay. And so it, what was crazy to me watching the movie, having read her book, was I was like – I was thinking that there was another hour to this movie, you know? I'm like, I'm like okay, man. Okay, so you read Erica's book before you watched the movie. Yeah. And so you knew all about this woman yep. prior to. To the film. To and the, the film. film was good. I Like, I will say it was really good. So wait, give us the synopsis of the film for okay. those who have not seen it. So, well, I think that... Um, so I'll just I'll give an abbreviated version because yeah. Erica has a lot to say about this about Virginia Hall's story. But um, the film basically uh, Virginia Hall is an American spy during World War II who goes into France. Okay, and she is helping orchestrate the D-Day landings from inside France. For the Americans. For the United States and Britain. Yeah. Okay, for the And allies. Canada. And, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and for France. And um, so she goes on many missions into France. And the film is about her first mission. Okay. And this book is about the second mission oh. with flashbacks to the first. Um, but they're really focusing on the second one, which builds up to D-Day. And so okay. I think the storyline that Erica picked out is the more compelling part of the story. So that's why I was... You feel like the movie missed it. I was like, wait, like, D-Day hasn't even happened yet. We're still in the middle of the war. Yeah, like, you just left us high and dry. <laughs> like, they need a second. They need a second half. Okay. 
So um, I'm so excited to talk to her about this story, but I want to talk quickly about why this history isn't told and how yeah. topics like these are kind of systematically left out of history classes. And Which is, like, super surprising. Well, because it's so, such a compelling story. Um, but... I think, and we've talked about Civil War spies mm -hmm. and how women were spies there. And w the pattern is women are spies in every war ever because they are unassuming, because people don't suspect them. No one has any expectations about a woman walking through a town. Right. So, and especially in France in 1942, nobody's, oh gosh, there's no, one there's there. no men yeah. there. So, you know, a woman on a bike, nobody notices or cares. So clandestine work is complicated because spying is complicated in terms of telling history. Right. Because everybody knows Eisenhower, who planned D-Day, because he was literally giving speeches and writing letters and things that are not class... Well, they were classified maybe at the time, but then... But there's some pretty incredible books about women involved in the war at you know, at that time. And, you know, we've read a couple in our book club, which has been really fun, but also... You know, I could go deep on some women's spy books, which is awesome for World War II. Yeah. Um, but clandestine work is really hard because a lot of times that work is the most top secret. And Virginia Hall, in particular, was an active spy even in the decades after the war. And so she is involved during the Cold War and, and other, you know, in other conflicts oh gosh. So around she, the she world. She continues her employment. Yeah, with the CIA, or OSS as it was called at the time. Yeah. So that type of work, which women in war are inclined towards, is, you know, if you're, if you're a, a gung-ho, rowdy lady who wants to help the war effort, you're not going to be satisfied rolling bandages back home. Oh my gosh, or like being a nurse. No, right. thank you. No, I want to be in the fight doing something I wanna to fix be, it. I want to be, yeah, powerful in the fight and be on the... I want to be helping. I and she's not only forward. she's not only on the front line like the guys on D Day. She's behind the line with right. the enemy right next to her, and, and trying to like live her life. Yeah. Ugh, so those types of her story and stories of anybody who's a spy during the war, not just women, are lost in history a lot of right. time because of the nature of the work that you're doing, and it just stinks that that type of work is the type of work that women tend to do in war. And in every war. In every war. Every war there's female spies. Yeah. Everyone. Right. So the stories that we don't know, how incredible they must be. Oh my gosh. And and can you imagine sitting next to or laying next to a man at nighttime who is like billeting at your home. Yeah. And you're a spy for the allies. Yeah. Yep. I mean, imagine the fear, the sweat, the just the determination, the anger. I mean, there's so many emotions. The that levels of deception and oh like, my god, it's just unreal. And it's they should be heard. Like we yeah. should hear about these women. I know, and I think that's one thing that we forget about sometimes is that there can be biases in history that are not determined by the source themselves, but mm. the lack of sources themselves. Right. Yeah. Like we know a lot about women who rolled bandages and served as nurses because that wasn't confidential information. <laughs> well, it's 
like, good job, Judy. Yeah. Thanks for the bandages. Keep it moving. <laughs> like, they publicized them. They took photos of them. They, these And not to belittle that movement. Thank, no. Thank you to the woman who did that. But it also, the jobs that were not advertised for and that women took up, hiding guns, hiding soldiers, yep. building barns so that they could get men across enemy lines. I mean, you have yep. so many examples that are really only first-person narrative sometimes, or, like, one or two people that are like, I stayed at this farm, and this woman definitely was part of the revolution, but yeah. I don't remember her name. <laughs> like, right. Well, and also, they had code names in a lot of cases. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so, absolutely. like, I might live with you for three weeks. And you I are literally you. saving my life, and my name's Barbara yeah. to you, you know? And so, like, you don't know. You don't yeah. know. Exactly. Like, you will never know. And the same thing. And, like, if I don't tell you that my name's Barbara. Yes. Like, I'm risking your life and my life because, if God forbid, somebody captures you and tortures you then for it names. Comes back to me. Like, yep. <laughs> you know. So, Virginia oh, Hall so is good. incredible. But she is just one of many. And I want to make um, a couple book recommendations to people. These are books that are recent publications that I'm reading right now. Okay. D-Day Girls. And Code Girls. Red Code Girls. And so good. Loved it. Um, it was a little slow to start, but yeah. it, it ends strong. It picks up. Yeah. Yeah, and they talk about a lot of really important people in, in the counterintelligence work. Well, yeah, and I think that's where I got a little lost is that there's so many facts. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, where's the story? <laughs> but I think if you're a historian reading it, you're like, I'm all in. Yeah. But more of a fiction reader like myself, um... Not so much. Well, this is the book for you. So <laughs> I'm going to ask Erica quickly to introduce herself here. Awesome. Okay. My name is Erica Roebuck, and I studied education and literature in college, and I've always been teaching and writing. And I was teaching third grade for a number of years, but when I started having my sons, I was able to write full-time, well, part-time while raising them. Uh, and it was during this time that I started really uh, exercising my novel muscles and putting all the research I love to do to work. So I've been writing historical fiction pretty much full-time with, with momming for about 10 years now. Um, okay, so you have written this book about Virginia Hall and women who spied during World War II. And um, I'm curious how you found her story and why I have never heard her story before reading your book. So why was her, why is her story, why would somebody like me not know this story? Well, I, I was shocked when I didn't know anything about her. So I was working on, I'd written many wife of famous American male writer books. And I was speaking to an editor and she said, could you really focus on a woman who is powerful in her own right? Not just because she's a, a wife of, but because she has done something on her own, uh, not someone in the shadows, which is funny, especially because I wrote about a spy. But I like to write about people from the places I come from and who have a personal connection. So that's usually why I end up with American subjects. And Virginia Hall came on my radar about that time. I was reading an article about famous Maryland women. I saw she grew up in Baltimore, not far from where I was, um, and just started digging into her story. And everything I found out about her was so unbelievable. I couldn't believe that no one had heard of her. And that's why I started writing her book. And my editor and I joke now that um, instead of being in the genre of wife of famous man books, that she could start a husband to famous woman book genre because she's just that amazing. 
So I love how she said there that she writes about women who were the wife of somebody else, and that's how she sort of got her start into... I mean, I feel like it's all you pipe on, which I love. (laughs) Like, yep, not just a wife of. Right. She has a name. She has a name. And so (laughs) me and Erica are like kindred. Yeah, Yeah, you're like soul (laughs) sisters. So I did ask her, though, who else has she written about? Because there's a lot of really cool people that she's written many books. And oh, so, cool. so awesome. this is what she said. I've written about Zelda Fitzgerald, the wife of Scott Fitzgerald, Sophia Hawthorne, wife of Nathaniel Hawthorne. Um, I wrote Hemingway's Girl, which was a fictionalized account of a woman um, in Hemingway's life, but also wrote about his second wife quite a bit. Um, so it's just sort of women who had been in the shadows of history. And I really... I guess that's Virginia Hall is a continuation of that because she was very much in the shadows with her clandestine work and um but in in a in a really different way. Yeah, that's cool. I um uh Zelda Fitzgerald's a character in the movie Genius. Uh oh Max Perkins, yes. About Max Perkins, yeah. I I used to teach American literature and I like I love that film. I thought yeah. it was it was a cool, um, I used it to sort of teach kids the significance and importance of the editing process. Oh, it's huge. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, um, so tell us a little bit about Virginia Hall. And if you, you know, your story does a good job weaving her story together. But if you were to teach it in a history class, how would you teach this story? And what would you say? Um, for her story, I would just talk about how a woman used the power of people telling her no to succeed. So when she was a young woman, uh, she was told that she should be a debutante. She was not to continue with all this hunting and running around in the muck and rowing canoes. And um, her mother really wanted her to be a society woman. And Virginia said no. And she became something very different and studied everywhere, all over the United States and in Europe. And when she went a little bit further, she knew she wanted to be in the Foreign Service. And the Foreign Service said no, because she was a woman and they didn't feel like she had enough to offer uh, US Foreign Service. Then she accidentally shot off her foot in a hunting accident. The doctors thought she might not walk again. Um, Her mother finally thought she would just stay home and stop all of this adventure. And her answer was no. And she learned to walk on a prosthetic leg that she named Cuthbert and um, ended up, it, it became such a part of her. After a certain amount of time, it really wasn't a thing to her. It was just a part of who she was. And that gave her the determination. Foreign Service again said, no, I'm sorry, you're handicapped. That's what they would say in the old days, obviously different verbiage nowadays. Um, But she used that to go and offer her service to France when they were in the fall. She drove ambulances, she carried stretchers. France was happy to have her help. And then finally, she got on the radar of these spy organizations. And initially, um, when France didn't want to send her back because she was on wanted posters, then she asked the U.S. And by that time, they said, "Okay, we will use you now. And she ended up being a spy for the U.S. ultimately, even though she started for Britain and France. Okay, I mean, incredible story. Yeah. So I I was thinking she was going to be French born. No. She's American. She's American. Okay. Yeah. Who just is so, like, I think, like, everyone should take a foreign language. (laughs) I keep saying this to my husband. He's like, what one would we do? Yeah. (laughs) I I know. It's hard to find ones now that are relevant given how, you know. 
prevalent I guess we English. We're pretty is... close to Canada, so we could do French Canadian. Yeah, I'm sorry, I, that's French. what I. That's what I speak French. That's my only other language. I don't speak any other language, and I've taken Spanish and French. Oh gosh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not helpful. But what an incredible story of someone who has just overcome so many odds. Yeah, I mean, losing her leg like that's it. So insane. I mean, this is something in that time, like men who came home from the war who were missing limbs would leave their fiancés. They thought that they were not worthy of yeah. love because they're less than. Yeah. A woman at that time? Right. That's, you know, multiply that by a thousand. But the thing is, is this isn't even like a war thing. This is something that happened to her before the war. Right. And she's like, whatever, I'll still go. I mean, <laughs> it's amazing. And, and, and she should. Yeah. It's, but at that time... The, th- the thing about losing a limb or losing a piece of you, any, like, it made you less than. Yeah. So it's just incredible on top of that. Like, she's yeah. like, yeah, fuck it, this, and then that, and yeah. then I'm going to go for this, and yeah. then, like. And I'm just going. I'm just going. Yeah. You're not going to stop me half a leg shy. Right. <laughs> so she's incredible. And one thing that's fascinating is that when they initially recruit her to help in the war effort, the United States is actually not declared war war yeah and so she's actually recruited by the british to help them and so another famous woman in uh world war ii that everybody should know is vera atkins and vera atkins is a um british woman she's an immigrant to britain um and she's jewish but people don't know that that she's working with which is interesting and so vera atkins reaches out to her and basically recruits her to be okay. a part of the war. Can you imagine that meeting? Oh. Those two badass women. Fly on the wall. Like, seriously, I just, that's, that's the movie. Yeah. That's, I want to see that. Yeah. Like, well, that's the first, that's the movie. Oh. That's what it's about. <laughs> you gotta watch it. I mean, good job, uh, Hollywood. Yeah. I'll watch it. So, Any, anyways, but I, like... Pretty awesome, and the, the fact that she's Jewish and doesn't tell anyone—that's yeah. a bit. I mean, that's a huge motivator for why she's probably involved, but also like so dangerous. Yeah. So I asked her how Vera Atkins actually found Virginia Hall. Ooh, like, yeah. you know, how do you how do you um, find so, these people? Yeah. So when Virginia was leaving France, she had to go out through Spain, and she ended up taking a train ride and getting in a conversation with a man who had connections to both the war office um, and the underground, which was the special operations executive. And then when Virginia got out of France, they, at the war office, wanted to hear everything she could tell them about what was going on because she had been behind enemy lines. And with all of the information she was able to give on how people were living, that's when they realized that she could be a really valuable person um, to go back into France. And at that time, the U.S. wasn't in the war, so her cover could be an American journalist. And so that's kind of how she got on everyone's radar. Uh, But another big factor is that she spoke French, English, Spanish, German, and Russian fluently, and then had some, some other passable languages. So the fact that she could speak so many languages meant that she could not only converse, but she could eavesdrop. So... Um, or blend in if necessary. So it was her really her knowledge of languages and the fact that she had already been behind enemy lines that that recommended her to the cause. 
So after her first mission, her cover gets blown. And this is... So scary. Super scary. She has to come... She has to leave France and come back to Britain and sort of reevaluate what to do. And... Can you um, imagine feel like that happening to you in that time? Yeah. So I asked her to tell me, like, basically what's going on you know, yeah. during this time. And this is what she said. Yeah. So, um, in 19, first of all, Pearl Harbor happens in 41 December. And so she can no longer be there freely as an American journalist, but she doesn't want to leave. And at that point she's been there so long, her accent's getting better, but it's still not great, but she has established her contact base so well that she is able to stay and still operate under the radar. However, when the Germans spill in to the unoccupied zone and all over France after they fall in North Africa in 1942, that's when she has to go. Because at that point, um, she definitely would be in danger if she were there as an American. She's on the radar of the Gestapo. And ultimately, she has a wanted poster. They called her La Dame qui boit, the limping lady. Um, and so she is a known entity. So she has to escape. And at that point, that's when Vera Atkins and the SOE says, we're not sending you back. We would be sending you back to your death. Um, but in the United States, the OSS is run by General William Donovan, and he was known as Wild Bill. He was a loose cannon. He was a rebel. And she appealed to him and said, I want to go back. I'll go back in disguise. That was another thing. The U.S., um, the OSS liked to use disguise. They called themselves the Department of Dirty Tricks. Uh, they were not above a good, you know, exploding camel dung or black propaganda to get the message through. Um, so they ended up taking her. And if she said, if I'm willing to stick my neck out and it gets cut, then that's on. And they were happy to take her to that. But it really was a lot more dangerous because it really wasn't wasn't good. And it was something she always had to battle. But again, you know, when you tell Virginia, she can't do something, she's going to do it. Um, so she is sent back. Vera doesn't want her to go in. Mm -hmm. And, um, around that time is, is when she, she's, she becomes part of the OS. She's, she's now under OSS umbrella. Mm -hmm. And is then sent in. And I guess what I what what I really appreciated about your book was the detail of what people are doing when they're there, right? Because mm -hmm. they have to basically just function. You you have scenes where she's milking cows and mm -hmm. things like that, but then they're also sending messages to the allies and reporting information. But then there's so much more than that. So could you tell us about like what the purposes of these missions was? Yes. And the OSS is the precursor to the CIA. And what the mission is, is to go behind enemy lines and to work with local populations for them to empower them to overthrow either bad governments or, or difficult situations or war. Um, it really is about engaging with the local population. And as part of that, you have to become part of the population. And so the intelligence that they get out of there is so important. So the OSS would create a French wardrobe that would match something that a peasant of a specific region would wear. They would have the buttons sewn on a certain way. She had to get her fillings removed and replaced with gold fillings because that's... <laughs> I mean, it was a brutal process. Um, there was a man who actually had plastic surgery to pin his ears back because the first time he was there, his ears were very prominent and he would be recognizable. So, I mean, these are the lengths that people went to 
but uh, to change their appearance and to be able to blend in and operate under a normal, people might actually think you are a French man or woman doing farm work, but at the same time, you have to be able to rally the troops so that they can, they can empower them uh, to fight the battles. And yeah. France especially needed it at that time. They, after the fall, it was, um, it was really, really hard on the population. And, you know, they felt like failures and they were really trapped and there wasn't a lot they could do. So when you get these secret agents starting to rally the troops behind enemy lines, it's very good for morale. Well, and the French also have people that are collaborating and it's very dangerous to to support the allied cause and resist. All right. So, yes, it was more dangerous for Virginia with the French police, which were the French militia who cooperated with the Nazis, because the native French men and women could detect her American accent much easier than a German could. They couldn't hear those subtleties. So for her, the danger was really on all fronts. So you had to you had to go there, figure out who you could trust, who you couldn't trust, um, and then uh, build from there. And it's really why, I mean, so many of the spies did not come home because it, you know, she was given a, a timeline of six weeks to live when she went there. That's how long these people were lasting and they would still go. So that's one of the things that struck me too, um, the extraordinary heroism that people would go into a situation, told they're going to be probably captured or dead within six weeks and off they went. <laughs> so that is service. <laughs> that is real service. And what was so scary to me about her story is that when D-Day happens, in my mind, as I'm reading your book, I'm like, okay, D-Day will happen and then she'll just get absorbed into the allied forces and proceed with all those defenses. And she just goes deeper into French territory at that point, into even more danger than she was before, well, maybe not more, but into just as much danger as she was before, um, and to this really cool community. So could you tell us a little bit about, about that? Yes, um, when ultimately Virginia's destination was, you know, a very far away place called Le Chambon sur Lignon, and it's not clear whether that was originally intended for her or it evolved over her mission, but it was clear that she had a knack for rallying the troops, both the guerrilla fighters, who the McKee, who were waiting in the woods, and the local population. But when she got to this place, it was so much more than she had anticipated because they were harboring fugitives of a very special kind and at great personal danger. And for them to do this was so heroic. I don't want to give too much away without, you know, without having someone read the story. Um, but then she realized even how much more precious her work was, how much more she needed to defend the area, how much more quickly it needed to be liberated um, because, because of the very special people who were there. So this is just an incredible story. I mean, unreal. And I, like, I can't even believe that that's somebody's life. Um, so I asked her to tell me, cause she did a ton of research and in the back of the book, she has, you know, a whole slew of citations. Um, so I asked her to tell me about the primary materials that she encountered yeah, okay. and what, like basically what she found. And so this is what she said. Well, I mean, the great thing, I live just outside of near DC. So I was able to go to college park to her records and look at all of her personnel files, read her ratings, um, see her Distinguished Service Cross nomination, photographs, 
uh, that was all so valuable in helping to understand her. Um, of the primary sources, the one that was the most helpful to me was actually a French book that I had to put into Google Translate because I don't speak French. So I know a lot was lost in the translation, um, but it was written by a man named Simon or Pierre Fayol, who was one of the fighters in Le Chambon. And that gave the most immediate information about her work there and the challenges that she had in working with them. Um, so that was awesome. And there, there were a lot of really nice source materials, but it was just a mention in this book or a mention in that book because she didn't want to be found. So it wasn't easy to access information on her. Um, so for me, the, the biggest way that I got to really know and love her was her niece, Lorna, who lives 25 minutes away from me. So we had a lot of lunches. And Lorna and I talked about her Aunt Dindy, as she knew her a lot. And I got to see a lot of family photographs. And that really helped to animate Virginia for me, better than any biography ever could have. For lesson plan ideas and how to teach women's history, go to our website, www.remedialhistory.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook. If you think what we're doing is needed, please consider joining our Patreon community. Through Patreon, you can sponsor a podcast with a small donation. Patrons get access to behind-the-scenes information, gear, and bonus episodes. Patreon allows you, the listener, to ensure that the shows you love continue. This episode is sponsored by our patrons, Kent and Jamie Heckel from Ohio, Leah Tanger from Connecticut, Sarah Reardon from New Hampshire, Barbara Tischler from New York, Mark Breyer from wherever his van has wandered, Jeffrey Ecker and Brooke Neva Sullivan from right here next to me. Thank you so much for your contributions to this podcast. You make it possible. So without further ado, <laughs> I asked Erica to tell me if she was a teacher, how would she teach the story and where I mean, would she start? Ultimately, all we're worried about, where do you go? Where do you go? Because it's hard. Like if you're teaching D-Day, like I teach, I spend a lot of time on D-Day. Well, A, because I'm a nerd. Yeah. I was like, well, <laughs> shocking. <laughs> you probably walk away from your classroom being experts on D-Day, but- for the average teacher. <laughs> right. But I do think D-Day is important in a U.S. history class because sure. it is the big, it's like, it's a big moment. And and granted, I don't spend a ton of time on the European theater in my class at all because for the Americans, the Pacific theater and the war with Japan is what starts the war and it's what ends the war, right? In terms now, of Pearl Harbor. theater, my brain really just went to Broadway. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my God, that's so great they included the arts in the classroom. <laughs> um, no. Not so much. We start with Pearl Harbor, we end with an atom bomb in, in this <laughs> so war. So not theatrical. So I do think that it's tied to... Japan more than it is right, tied to Europe. Yeah. But if you are going to talk about the European theater, you need to talk about what's going on there in terms of the Holocaust and in terms of American involvement. D-Day is incredibly right. important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I do spend a lot of time on it, and how I many, show them. How many days are we talking about in your oh, class? Oh, one. Okay. One day on D-Day. <laughs> so I do teach, when I teach D-Day in class, I do spend a lot of time on strategy. And what I learned from Erica is a little bit more about 
the behind the scenes work that's leading up to D-Day because okay. it, it doesn't make sense that uh, and it, I, I'm so embarrassed that for how much research I've done into D-Day, I didn't really understand how much work people in France in the years, not just m- weeks and months, but years leading up to the invasion, how much work people are doing to supply the me. French resistance. I guess it, like, because we're so, when things happen now, it's the same day. Yeah. It's like, this person's here, insurgent same day yeah back then drone done they coordinated for months years as you said and it's so surprising to me because if if you were the army that was defending that land i mean wouldn't you have been differently prepared if you knew how many american canadian british soldiers are coming on to your yeah and but the problem the germans were prepared um, they just thought the invasion was coming somewhere else, largely oh. because of the intelligence work that the Allies were doing. Okay. Um, they were told that, or they believed because of, basically we had people making them believe that it was going to happen in Calais, and it happened in Normandy. Okay, so and, they, they attacked in a different space. Yeah, and, and then the Allies... I guess they didn't know that. The Allies cut off bridges to the Normandy region. That was, like, the first step so that the Germans couldn't reinforce the people that were there. But cutting off those bridges was being done by gliders that were coming over from Britain that night in silence, like, at, like, 3 a.m. But it was also being done by French people already on the ground being armed by people like Virginia Hall. You know, when you set it up thinking about what she's being asked to do... You need to think about the type of people that would be willing to do I mean, that. Yeah, exactly. Who, so who is? Yeah. So this is what she said. I think I would. I really like to highlight the way locals support the effort. Ordinary people doing extraordinary things, and even Virginia, to a certain extent. Now she was extraordinary with her aptitude for languages and Morse code and all of that. Um, but just teaching kids that. Wherever your calling is, you will find the grace to perform what you need to do. So find out what you're good at. And Virginia, it was, you know, it was languages and it was stubbornness and a wish to travel and keen intelligence. But, you know, maybe maybe you're interested in the environment. So, you know, mountains so you can be a guide for people or maybe you are an excellent cook and nurturer. So you can hide people in your home in the basement. So trying to show where ordinary people fit into history, but how they do extraordinary things by just living the life that they're meant to live. And I feel like Virginia was just a real gift because her story is so extraordinary. You know, I just, her, everything about her speaks for itself. Um, There is a new biography. It came out last year. It would have been really helpful if it had come out several years ago, but it came out last year, but it's excellent. It's called A Woman of No Importance. And for the readers who are more advanced or who really want to do a deep dive into Virginia and every aspect of her life from birth to retirement, that is a great book. So A Woman of No Importance paired with The Invisible Woman would have the nonfiction history piece and the fiction, and the two would go really well together. And it doesn't really matter what order you read them in. But, you know, if I were teaching, I'd probably have people get interested through the fiction and then take them to the nonfiction for those who really want to know more. 
So I'm working on developing a C3 inquiry okay. that's over multiple days where you um, take some of the stories that we've talked about, um, about women that are yeah. involved in this war, in the war effort, and um, whether it be Rosie's back home or Wax or Waves right. or nurses or whatever, and it's a multi-day uh, investigation of women in the war effort. And right. one of those little details is stories like Virginia, Virginia Hall being an example right. among yeah. many who are part of this war effort. Um, because I think that when we talk about, like, when you learn about World War II, women are always mentioned, and Rosie the Riveter is always the example. And Rosie There's the Riveter so is not a real person. Oh yeah, we'll, we'll start there. <laughs> she's a great icon. She, but she is a great she's symbol. A symbol of the work that many women are doing. But wrote, but working in factories back home is only one of one, the things yeah, exactly. that women are doing. And. Um, so I I want to make the story the women's World War II story more inclusive. Well, and holistic. Holistic. Give, yeah. Give the whole picture that men were not the only ones fighting this war. Right. Yes, they were a huge piece of the puzzle. Absolutely. Yeah. But there was women there all along the way. They were at every point in. Oh, a giant world war. They didn't just stay home and wait for men to come home. Right. And that story needs to be told. So right now we have portions of this up online, and we will keep adding to them awesome. and then compile them into a C3 template for everybody. I mean, so. download it. Woohoo! <laughs> Make it a thing. Into the class. <laughs> Brooke, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Kelsey. I'm Brooke Sullivan. I'm Kelsey Eckert. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.